Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. Today, I'm joined by two guests to discuss the upcoming Victorian state election. My first guest is Benita Kolovos. Benita is Victorian state correspondent for The Guardian Australia. Hello, Benita. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. And my second guest is Jeff Robinson. Jeff is a political historian and lecturer at Deakin University. Hello, Jeff. Good afternoon, Ben and Benita. So the Andrews Labor government has now held power for two terms, uh, eight years, coming back into power in 2014 after one term out of power. While Labor has held power in Victoria for all but four of the last 23 years, they still appear to be in a dominant position in the few polls we've seen. Today, we're going to explore the background to this election, and we'll come back to the election over the next two weeks. Benita, how would you rate the government's chances of re-election at the moment? All the bookies, all the punters are saying that they're likely to be re-elected. Um, all the latest polls, I think new news poll came out on Sunday that had them at 54 to 46 on two-party preferred, which is very similar to the 2018 result. Then we've had Resolve, which is 56, 44. No one is saying that they're not going to win it. I think the question is how they're going to win it, what it's going to look like. There are whispers of a minority government. I don't like to say it's a done deal, um, but if we're looking at um, all the polls, all the odds, it's definitely in Labor's favour. I would largely concur with Benita there. I mean, I think the government is very much in poll position. If several possible things went wrong for them, you could imagine a minority government being possible, but that would really have to be on the back of a bigger-than-expected overall swing to the Liberals, the Greens doing very well, possibly some surprise um, independent victories as well. So I think a minority government is a possibility, but I still think it's pretty unlikely and the likely outcome is a majority Labor government. The basic maths will tell you that it's Labor's. I think the Liberals need 18 seats to form government. That's a that's a massive ask. In the last term, we've... Uh... Probably the biggest issue has been COVID-19, right, and the lockdowns. Um, This has been something that's been going on around Australia, but Victoria, particularly Melbourne, has been hit much harder than other big cities in terms of lockdowns. It seems to have really played a big issue. I know in the federal election, there were areas where Labor went backwards in outer suburban Melbourne that didn't you didn't really see the same pattern in Sydney or Brisbane quite as much. It seems to have also played a big role in defining Dan Andrews for good or for ill. Um, How do you think COVID-19, you know, we're past the stage of lockdowns of kind of restrictive policies. Um, Maybe start with you, Benita. Uh, How do you think COVID-19 and the way that the government responded to that is going to be a factor in this election. Well, you mentioned the Premier's role in the pandemic response, the fact that he was there, I think it was 120 consecutive press conferences in a row. He really became the face of the pandemic response. Um, He was the one that was locking us down or introducing vaccine mandates. Um, So that has kind of created this um, divisive figure in the Premier. Um, Although I do think that the further we're getting away from COVID in the sense that now we don't have isolation, um, there's no restrictions. Um, a lot of people have moved on, um, but there is that group of people that are really aggrieved. When you talk about, for example, the western suburbs of Melbourne, um, they were the worst affected um, in terms of COVID deaths, infections, and you know their income. But these are people that might not necessarily be able to work from home. I think that the question is, is that a big group of people um, or is it just a really loud minority? I think we'll find out. Uh, and Jeff, actually, I'll, I'll ask you a related question. It seems to me like 
there's a certain group of people for whom that they they personally find Dan Andrews very unappealing, very unpopular, and they seem to think that's a broader view. But there's also plenty of people for whom Andrews is quite popular. It seems like the defining feature is that he's divisive. Like some people really like him, some people really don't. How do you see that playing out? Well, yes, Ben, I think he's definitely perhaps from the um, Paul Keating and before that perhaps um, Jack Lang style of political leadership, um, polarise people and get people on side. Um, and it's certainly, I think, mobilised people on both sides and it's created um, a kind of appeal there for people to mobilise against Andrews. Yeah, and I think as Benita points out, there's some evidence that has happened more in safer Labor seats, although you know probably a fair portion of this cohort might be people who were Liberal voters anyway, but who happen to be living in safe Labor seats, and there are a lot of those. But yeah, Andrews has become something of a flashpoint. Um, to a degree, it's also helped him on the other side as well, I think, in terms of shoring up the government's progressive credentials and defending that ground against the Greens as well. His, his sort of polarising style, I think, maybe it's going to cause some problems in the election, but by and large, I still think it's a plus to the government, as much because the seats works are negative, I think, are all such safe Labor seats, whereas the marginals, perhaps where I think he is probably more popular, um, there I think he's advantaged by it. We haven't seen a lot of um, polling on this, but where we have seen satisfaction ratings or preferred premier, Andrews is still ahead, right? Like it's not like his his personal ratings are, are in the gutter. I think it's also worth noting that some of these seats that we're talking about, Labor has got margins of like 16% last 20%. So even if he does have a double-digit swing away from him in those seats or for Labor to have those swings away from them, um, they'll still probably retain those seats. Then on the other side, the Liberal Party, they're back to Matt Guy, who led them in 2018. They did have a change of leadership for a minute there, but uh, didn't work out. Um, how's the Liberal Party leadership kind of playing into the election? Matthew Guy, we know from obviously 2018, that was the Dan Slide election where Labor won seats that had never won before. Um, and we had a review that was conducted following that, the Liberal Party um, just try to figure out what went wrong. And a lot of people knew Matthew Guy and that sort of law and order campaign that they ran at that election. Um, they said that I think Something like 6% of voters said that they saw that law and order campaign. They saw this idea of, you know, African gangs wreaking havoc on the city and they kind of, you know, heard it, understood it, but it didn't necessarily make them vote for the Liberals. For some of them, that 6%, it actually made them not want to vote for them. So I think that's Matthew Guy's baggage. Obviously, there was that um, lobster cave dinner with an alleged mobster um, that happened before that election as well. So he has been trying to rebrand this year. He's now Matt Guy. Um, a lot more, um, I think the slogan is real solutions for all Victorians, trying to be more practical, take the heat out of it a little bit. Not that sort of angry, aggressive Matthew that we knew back in 2018. I would definitely concur with what Benita is saying there. You know, I think that obviously a low guy, I think, got the leadership, you know, in, in part, I think, of course, of frustration with the Liberal base who wanted somebody who would take the fight up to the um, demonic um, Dan Andrews. He has, it's been a pretty conscious pivot, I think, to the centre, you know, talking about the problems in the healthcare system, um, you know, big public transport promises, you know, which to a degree Labor has been playing a little bit of a catch up there, trying to go for that format of saying it's infrastructure and services, which are going to determine the election, 
and steering clear of the kind of sort of um, cultural politics to a degree he was dragged into last time. Potential problem there, of course, is that there are some Liberal candidates who are very much on the cultural side of things in terms of the involvement of um, religious conservatives in the party. Um, so far, that doesn't seem to have blown up in his face, but I'm sure Labor will be scrutinising their social media feeds extremely closely. Jeff, I have a bit of a historical question for you. You know, you look at the history of Victoria. Victoria was a state for a very long time that was probably the Labor Party's worst state in the country, right? It was a state that was kind of the heartland of the Liberal Party um, and we saw kind of up until the 80s, it was very rare that Labor was in government, actually. And we now have, you know, if Labor wins this election, they'll have won all but three elections since the early 80s. Um, they do seem to be in a bit of a dominant position now. And we've seen, you know, the culmination of this historical trend, I think, probably was some of those kind of heartland liberal electorates like Goldstein and Higgins and Kuyong falling at the federal election. But... Um, Victoria's position is very different today to how it was for most of the 20th century, right? That is certainly the case there, Ben, but uh, perhaps the continuity there might be saying, well, in a sense, Victoria has always been a kind of liberal state, but these days perhaps the Labor Party has more claim to that liberal tradition of Victorian politics and the big L liberals have more defined themselves um, as a conservative party. And yeah, that certainly worked for Scott Morrison in Queensland, um, but didn't, hasn't worked very well for the Liberal Party in Victoria. So I do think there's that aspect there at the parties changing their positions as well. And certainly, I think the revolt against the Liberals in their safe seats, you know, that you saw with the Teals and which you saw with Labor's performance in 2018 is an expression of that. What other policies are we seeing being big issues in the election? The one that I've written down here that jumped out at me, but I'm I don't live in Victoria, but from seeing from a distance was the suburban rail loop, big, big spending policy. But what are the other big policy agendas that are driving the campaign? The suburban rail loop pledged by the opposition, I think that's to pause or shelve or revisit that project that Andrews announced at the 2018 election. It's a big, ambitious train line that's going to run from Cheltenham all the way, I think, to Werribee via all of the suburbs, um, it's it's massive. It's going to cost, oh, the Labor government says $35, $50 billion, but then we've got others saying $125 billion, others saying more. So Matthew Guy says now's not the time to be doing that. He's going to reinvest all that money into health and hospitals. So he's announced, I think, something like 20 new hospitals for Victoria. Um, it's interesting. A lot of them are in marginal seats. Um, but, you know, Labor, I think all the hospitals that Labor have announced are in Labor seats. So um, there is that kind of spending spree going on on health in particular, which makes sense coming out of the pandemic. We obviously had, um, you know, lengthy waits in emergency departments, triple zero, um, a report into triple zero found, you know, 30 Victorians died because they waited too long for an ambulance. So both are acknowledging that that needs to um, be fixed. Um you know, Jeff mentioned transport. That's a big one. $2 public transport fares capped in metropolitan Melbourne is what the opposition's offering. Then you've got Labor saying we'll um, cap V-line fares at the same price as metropolitan fares for regional um, commuters. So they're kind of going head-to-head -head on transport too. Um, I think the policy that's got the most cut through, though, from Labor's side would be the um, billion-dollar spend 
I think it's multi-billion dollar spend into bringing back the SEC, the state, is it State Electricity or State Energy Commission, um, which was privatised, and I'm sure Jeff can tell you a lot more about it, um, in the 90s under Kennett. Um, and now he's saying we're going to bring it back because, you know, coal fire plants aren't sustainable anymore. Everyone's leaving the industry. Let's replace it with renewables and let the state own a third of it, which is, yeah, quite extraordinary. So the SEC, I saw that, and I thought it was interesting not just that they've done this as a policy, but they've kind of used the branding of an old government agency that uh, I can't imagine that that would be typically something you would do. Jeff, can you give us a bit of context about what that's about? Well, it is very interesting. I, I, I have a PhD student at mine who actually did some work on the business plan for um, potentially bringing it back. I'm not exactly sure what his views were, but the, the policy style of the state government tends to be, um, we've got a big idea and we're going to do it. They, they do tend to think that the Brax Brumby government suffered a bit from paralysis by analysis. So their approach, some people say, bends the stick too far the other way. But I think it's trying to capture, obviously, concern about energy prices. Um, I don't know how many people have heard at the SEC, but there's probably a population out there of mildly left-wing baby boomers who might vote for the Greens who are excited to hear a Labor government talking about this certainly seems to have fired up social media um, and it is you know picking up I think perhaps on this you know I think there's a bit of a global trend towards people wanting a more active role for government and this you know Victorian state government has been pushing that fairly hard and its massive infrastructure program I think is a good example of that the criticism I think a lot of policy insiders make is that it is a bit back at the envelope policy that Labor's not keen on, as I say, paralysis by analysis, but I think Labor thinks that voters like that kind of can-do approach. It's funny because in one sense, government government is constantly intervening in the market and spending money on these things, but they can often do it in a way that's a bit more subtle and doesn't look as much, whereas like branding something, the State Electricity Commission screams the opposite approach, even if the, the amount of money is not massive you're kind of giving it the branding of government intervention and kind of um you know taking things seriously and not just leaving it to the market whether or not that's true the government's probably gone at times for a a kind of rhetorical leftism perhaps in economic policy which maybe has not actually been the case in practice you know if you look at the, the public housing program it's actually pretty modest what's being done there this, this new SEC is going to have a big private sector component and so on. But it's certainly, I think, something very popular with the party base, I think, um, and probably with a lot of left-inclined voters generally who, who might otherwise wander off to the Greens. Yeah, the um, Premier, his comments have been so strong around this, you know, privatisation has failed, Victoria, um, you know, these energy companies are greedy, they're, they've exploited us and now they're packing up and leaving um, he's really trying to fire people up. It's just, yeah, very, um, very interesting, I guess, because I grew up when everything was being privatised and now this return back to public ownership. Um, and it's, like Jeff said, it's not just happening here, it's happening all over the world. Integrity was a key theme at the federal election as well, so it's likely to, you know, sway voters here in Victoria. Um, but, you know, neither side have necessarily covered themselves in glory on this front. So I think it's something that, you know, the Greens and um, the independent candidates that are running um, will be, you know, campaigning heavily on. Yeah, and it's probably worth mentioning we're going to do a whole episode next week about the upper house and group voting tickets, which I have 
been very deep in and there's about eight blog posts either up or coming up on my website on that topic. Um, but we're going to do that properly next week. But it is another issue where the government hasn't acted on it and, to be honest, doesn't seem particularly interested in acting about reforming the uh, upper house voting system, even though there's quite a loud push to have that happen. So, um, yeah, but we'll cover that properly next week. Well, I wanted to then touch a bit on the regional dynamics of the election, like the geography, because it is interesting, you know, Jeff, you're a historian, you know that over time, uh, the kinds of seats that decide elections that are important aren't always the same, right? They change, different areas are changing. I feel like we're seeing a little bit of a small snippet of that happening in the last couple of elections that... um, Labor did quite well in the kind of inner southeast liberal heartland last election. They won Hawthorne, which was a shock. They came pretty close in Brighton and Sandringham. And then you go into kind of outer suburban southeast Melbourne, the kind of Frankston line seats that have always been the kind of key to a state election. I say always, obviously not always. In recent decades, they've been key. Um, And they seem to be a little bit more labor leaning than they used to be. And then, of course, We've talked about the Western suburbs where it seems like uh, the government's approach to COVID hasn't been quite as popular as maybe it has been elsewhere. And uh, there are some previously safe Labor seats that look a little bit less safe now. Um, what, are, what are Maybe I'll start with you, Jeff. What are you seeing in the sort of those geographic trends? Well, I certainly think yeah, that what you're saying there, Ben, makes sense as an overall depiction of the trend. You know, I think obviously we saw a government doing very well last time, returned with a big margin. And it probably wasn't surprising that traditional marginals, you know, such as those in the southeast, were picked up as well. But obviously, I think the kind of culture war aspect of the last election played in Labor's favour in some of those more traditional small liberal areas like Hawthorne and so on. Um, you'd probably tend to think that there will be a bit of a fallback from that peak of last time, you know, the government showing its age and the sort of culture war issues not being as strong there. But there are those potential problems for Labor in the western suburbs and as well actually in parts of the southeast. You know, if you go sort of to the far southeast of Melbourne, it's probably a fairly similar demographic to lots of the western suburbs and there are seats in the far southeast, you know, out around Narry, Warren, Cranbourne and so on that look safe on current margins, you know, but I think the fact that unions are directing campaigners to them and so on and they are sort of archetypal mortgage belt, high population turnover seats where if there were if there was a backlash against Labor in safer seats, it's probably more likely to actually lead to seat losses, I think, in the southeast, more perhaps in the West, maybe apart from Melbourne. I know Narrowar North, where Luke Donellan has retired, is I think listed as a category A seat for Labor, which means they're prioritizing it, putting a lot of time, money, energy into it. And that's one of those um, southeastern seat and then looking towards Pakenham which is renamed that was Jembrook which is currently held by um, Brad Batten a Liberal MP but under the redistribution that's happened it becomes a Labor seat on a 2.2 percent margin so it is marginal um, but they are quite worried that they won't be able to hang on to that. The regions too perhaps are interesting um, because Labor has done very well in the Victorian regional cities over the years you know, and I think and I think a lot of that probably reflects the fact that they're pretty public sector dominated in terms of employment and so on, which I think has been a big plus to them there. It's interesting, after the redistribution, there's sort of a couple of 
currently coalition held regional seats that are now notationally Labor and probably the battle in the regions is about more well in the, in the Latrobe Valley and Ripon which is on the outskirts of Ballarat and the sort of swing that's apparently looking likely in the polls would make them very much line ball I think and very competitive and you know of course you've got a, I think a pretty high profile Liberal frontbencher and Louis Staley as well so there's an area where the Liberals are going to have to be playing defence. Morwell is really interesting, right, because Russell Northey, who's the independent there, he won it as a Nationals MP initially, then held on to it as an independent. But before that, it was the Labor Territory um, and, you know, in the times of the SEC. So I think maybe that announcement is really geared towards that electorate and Labor being able to win that back. It's a notional Labor seat now as well. Yeah, and they've, I think, promised to base the SEC there again. So, um, you know... Yes, there's a big, bold policy, but it makes sense electorally as well um, if you want to hang on to more well. I don't want to go fully in-depth about all the independents this week. I think we'll cover that another week. But there are a lot of independents running. There's a lot of women running as independents, a lot of independents who you look at their website and they have like a much more put-together campaign than you might normally expect. It's a bit hard to quantify that, but I visit the website of every single candidate who's running and you notice a trend this time as you did in the federal election. And they are running all over the place, but there's a few more of them in more conservative seats. And I don't think we'll see the same wave we saw in the federal election, but, you know, maybe maybe one or two of them might sneak through as well. I think there's four candidates that have been backed by Climate 200. They've endorsed by them. They've got very similar style, a lot of teal, um, similar sort of photography. And they're um, in Caulfield, in Hawthorne, in Kew and in Mornington, all female candidates. Um, I think if we're looking at where they're going to do well, it just makes sense that they've got, you know, more donations, more resources, um, more help that it would be those four. But, you know, I think they're getting really confident about Q. That's where um, Liberal MP Tim Smith has resigned after that car crash around this time last year. Um, I think they're confident there. Hawthorne is really interesting. Um, obviously, we had John Pesuto lose it on live TV last time around. Um, I think a lot of people in the area almost you know when I was speaking to them I did a whole week out there when we were writing these seat profile pieces a lot of people actually kind of felt bad like I don't think they meant for him to um, not be their MP anymore I think um, a lot of people were saying you know he's um, he's great I felt terrible for him he's a future leader Um, this talk about you know the future of the Liberal Party Um, he is always you know flagged as someone that could potentially lead the party so um, he's on the small l Liberal bandwagon considers himself a moderate so I think Hawthorne while yes that was the heart of um, the Kuyong campaign I'm I'm not sure this time around I think there's a lot of people um, backing Pseudo because you know he's the one that can lead them out of the wilderness type thing. I did a bit of analysis on my blog looking at the number of seats which ended up not being Labor versus coalition races, that they're growing just like they were at the federal level. Um, You know, six crossbenchers got elected in 2018, which was far more than what we've had in recent history in Victoria, uh, and the major party vote has been dropping. So there has been a bit of that same trend we've seen at the federal election, not the same kind of, not all of the same factors that exist at the federal level, but some of them are there. Um, and it's also worth noting the Greens 
uh, there's been a bit of speculation on my blog. I don't know if there's any basis to this, that the Liberals are going really hard on put Labor last and whether that might mean they decide to preference the Greens over Labor in some of those inner city seats. That's what they did. The last time they did that was when Adam Bant was first elected and then they changed their mind and went to Labor. But we also saw an example in South Brisbane in the Queensland state election where they did that and the Greens won that seat, defeated the Deputy Premier. Um if they did that in Melbourne, it probably would probably make the Greens favourite in the three that I hold and two others. Whereas my blog post today, we're recording on Monday, um, is all about Pran, which is a very interesting dynamic where if the Greens vote could go up, but if it pushes the Liberals down into third, Labor could win the seat. But if the Liberals preference the Greens, that won't happen. Jeff, do you have thoughts about that kind of um, minor party independent surge? Yeah, I think it definitely is a real thing. And I'd was actually been thinking about this election. You know, I've been comparing it to the 2006 election, you know, which where you had the Brax Brumby government, you know, coming up for its third term, lost some seats, polled about 54% of the two-party preferred vote. But back then, um, you know, the two major parties had 80% of the vote. And if you look, for example, at all of the recent um, Victorian polls, they're showing a sort of similar two-party split, you know, about 55% for Labor, but they're showing the major parties um, only at about 70% of the vote overall. And when you've got 30% being seed by minor parties and independents, that does make it much... They're start, starting to approach that kind of threshold where they can potentially break through. That much being said, the sort of minor party vote is ideologically divided, you know, between the sort of green side and probably the sort of anti-Andrews right-wing protest side. Um, that's a potential problem, I think, for the sort of anti-Andrews parties in ever potentially sort of translating that into seats. But yeah, we are, I think, seeing the growth in these independents and could well be surprises out there. I suspect they might be more likely to happen perhaps in rural areas, I think, of anything, um, rather than in Melbourne. There's lots of talk about the... Um you know, teal wave in the inner city. But here in Victoria, we've had independent candidates um, regionally for years now. Um, in Shepparton, we've got Susanna Sheed. Um, in Mildura, we've got Ali Kappa, Russell Northey um, in Morwell as well. Um, so it's it's definitely been around um, for quite some time. You know, it'll be interesting to see if it, it does make its way into the inner city following May. The donation laws, when we talk about independence, and I know I didn't earlier, um, obviously, the federal election, you know, people could donate millions. And I think we saw today, you know, $10 million to teal independent candidates. Um, you can't do that here in Victoria. It's capped um, for individuals and organisations at, I think, $4,320 over four years. So it does make it a lot harder to amass those resources that you need to, you know, mobilise people to get your core flutes everywhere. Um, so I, I do wonder if that's going to have an impact on the independence as well. I do think the problem for Labor perhaps is most of all the rise of the Greens, I think. You know, in, they're the force most likely actually to win core Labor seats. And you know, I was talking about comparisons to 2006. You know, 2006, Labor could dropped a fair number of seats to the Liberals, still had a big margin, but there weren't any Green MPs in the lower house. And that is a potential challenge, I think, for Labor, that if not at this election, at some future election, they may well find themselves in the position of 
the Greens holding the balance of power. It'll be interesting to see, you know, I think there have been some media suggestions that Labor might take a more sympathetic approach towards the Greens in ticket allocation in the upper house. So you wonder whether or not there is some thinking going on in Labor about what the consequences might potentially be if the campaign went, if if the Liberals overperformed and if stray independents did well and if the Greens also overperformed. But still, I think a lot of things would have to go wrong for Labor to be forced into a minority government, I think. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Jeff and Benita, for joining me. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Ben and Benita. And thank you, Benita. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Twitter at the Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.